1: is Naked Oceans.
2: We're all about green grass and grazers this month on Naked Oceans as we take a look at the world of seagrasses. We found out why the diversity of critters, big and small, are vital in keeping seagrasses happy and healthy, and we shine a spotlight on a little-known seagrass muncher, the West African manatee. Hello, I'm Helen Scales, and with me is Sarah Caster-Perry. Hello!
0: In our Ocean News Roundup we'll hear how corals find it tough when things get too hot and too cold and in another episode of Critter of the Month we ask an oceans expert if they were a marine critter which they'd be and why.
3: It uses its bioluminescence like a sniper scope. It can sneak up very close to other animals, see them, and not be seen. Keep listening
0: to find out who that was and which critter they picked. As always, if you want to get in touch with us, we're on Twitter at Naked Oceans or drop us an email. The address is NakedOceans at com.
1: Supported by the Save Our Seas Foundation, this is Naked Oceans, on the web at nakedscientist.com slash oceans.
0: You're listening to Naked Oceans with Helen Scales and me, Sarah Castor-Perry. This month, we're talking about seagrasses. These are the flowering plants that colonize the shallow seas, growing in lush meadows across tropical and temperate zones. But like many coastal habitats, they're in decline around the world. I chatted with marine ecologist Emmett Duffy from the Virginia Institute of Marine Science about the problems seagrasses are facing and to find out more about his research investigating what happens when species are lost from seagrass ecosystems.
4: Well, seagrasses face a lot of the same threats that many other uh, ocean habitats do. Um, On a local level, they're threatened by uh, nutrient pollution, runoff from land, farms and domestic uh, regions which causes algae to overgrow them, and also soil erosion, which causes the water to be turbid and and dirty. Um, The seagrasses are plants, of course, so they need a lot of light and they need clear water to grow. On a global scale, seagrasses are threatened by uh, climate change as well. Um, Like corals, they tend to be, um, at least in temperate areas like uh, North America and Europe, they tend to be living near their upper thermal tolerances, meaning that a little bit of a rise in temperature can push them over a tipping point. And we're beginning to see that both in the Chesapeake Bay here in the US, uh, as well as in the Mediterranean.
0: And what would it mean uh, if we started to lose these beds? Are we already seeing a decline?
4: Yes, there's been a, a, a quite a large decline in, in the coverage of seagrass over the last several decades. Um, in the U.S., for example, I think that it's estimated that something like 70% of, of the seagrass coverage uh, has, has been lost, and that's a problem for uh, for a number of reasons. I mean, you can think of uh, an analogy with, with grasslands on land. The uh, The grass holds the soil together. It helps build soil. It obviously supports livestock that graze on it and all kinds of animals. It's actually quite similar in the sea that the seagrasses bind sediments together and help um, store organic matter. They can sequester carbon out of organic matter in the water column. Um, They provide direct food for large animals like turtles and manatees and dugongs. Um, But probably even more importantly, the grasses and the algae that are growing on them provide a lot of food and habitat for all kinds of small invertebrates that are near the base of the food chain. So many fishes and shellfish use seagrass beds as nursery areas. And there are a number of commercial fisheries that depend on seagrass beds because the the baby fish uh, live in the seagrass beds, and, and that's an important part of their life history.
0: It's kind of, it can be quite tough to go and experiment and have a look at this kind of ecosystem in the wild, as it were. And so I understand you've done quite a lot of what you refer to as mesocosm experiments. How, how do you go about studying an ecosystem in the lab?
4: Oh, uh, yeah, that's a good question. Yes, the mesocosm is the geekish word we use for trying to recreate a small version of an ecosystem. And... Um, the problem that we face is that the, the major um, herbivores, the, the animals that eat the, the plants and sort of start the process of uh, energy flow up the food chain, in seagrass beds those animals are, are primarily really small invertebrates, uh, sea bugs if you will. These are little crustaceans and it's very difficult to manipulate them in the field to try and find out what they're doing. So what we've done is to uh, is to bring the ecosystem into the lab or not strictly the lab but really uh, uh, outdoor tanks where we've planted seagrass and we have seawater flowing through them and we've been able to put different kinds of animals uh, into these grass beds to see what effect they have on the grass. So I mentioned earlier that the grass is important to the animals because it provides habitat. It's also true that some of these small animals... Uh, are important to the grass, so it's uh, what you might call a mutualistic uh, interaction. You know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. And the way it works is that um, the uh, the seagrasses can be overgrown by nuisance algae, pond scum, for example, um, that that are superior competitors. Except that these uh, small crustaceans eat that algae and therefore create conditions that are favorable for the grass. So that's that's the kind of thing that. We've been trying to to figure out using the mesocosms that is very difficult to do in the field.
0: but I also understand that you've now received a grant to be able to move that out into the real ecosystems how How do you go about moving your experiments from something like these sort of fairly controlled conditions out into something where you don't necessarily have a lot of control over the variables?
4: There are different questions that one can ask uh, under those different circumstances so, In the mesocosm experiments, we've been able to look in a lot of detail under highly controlled conditions at what different species are doing and manipulated the number of species of small animals to ask whether diversity makes a difference. Does it matter if you have one kind of grazer or five or six kinds of grazers? That's much more difficult to do out in the real world, so there's that disadvantage. But of course, the real world is what we really want to know about. And so what we've been able to do is to do, um, set up simpler experiments out there where we simply get rid of all grazers, um, all of these small invertebrates, to find out whether that has an influence on the grass. And we've done that with a uh, degradable insecticide that um, is put into a slow-release plaster block so we can see what impact that has on the plants but it doesn't have all of the problems associated with putting a cage out in the field because cages can shade the grass and they attract fouling organisms and sediment and all kinds of stuff. So the questions are somewhat simpler, but of course, because they're done out in the uh, actual seagrass beds with all of the other forces happening in in nature, we get a, a more accurate estimate of what the effects of those grazers might be. So we've um, run the same experiment at 15 different sites worldwide, from Japan through both coasts of North America to Scandinavia and Portugal. And we find that there's quite a bit of variability. So uh, in the coming year, we're hoping to try and figure out why that is. And part of it has to do with seasonality, um, that there are some times of year when, when the grazers are active and, and, and algal growth is strong and others when that's not the case. Um, And also there's, of course, geographic variation in in what factors are most important.
0: And how do you see these results being used going forward? Can we use them to perhaps direct conservation efforts?
4: Well, I hope so. I mean, it'll certainly be important to to know what the major factors influencing uh, seagrass ecology and, and populations are. A lot of the work that we've done in seagrasses is, is um, uncovering the importance of some of these really small, inconspicuous marine animals that nobody ever thinks about, the bugs and slugs, if you will. Um, some years ago, the, the famous biologist D.O. E. Wilson um, said that insects are the little things that run the world because they're very important in terms of nutrient cycling and maintaining the structure of plant communities. And I think what we're beginning to find out with some of this work is that uh, the same thing is true. Uh, in the oceans, that some of these tiny marine animals that no one pays attention to can have very large impacts on the system and are important to maintaining it in working order. I mean, we all love whales and, and turtles and so on, but we also need to love the bugs and slugs.
0: So we need to be thinking about conserving the bugs and slugs as well as the big charismatic species like turtles and manatees. That was Emmett
2: Duffy from the Virginia Institute of Marine Science. Great. Well, let's take a quick break from seagrasses and have a look at what else has been going on in the world of ocean science and conservation. First up, plastic debris. It's a growing concern. It's something uh, that's been talked about quite a lot lately. There's been a couple of campaigns to raise awareness about plastic in the oceans. You might have seen that rather disturbing picture of sushi made up of plastic bags and another one of a little kid, pulling up the edge of the sea under by the waves and, and looking under and all, all this terrible plastic waste hanging around that we don't see cuz you know it's it's under the waves and it's out of sight But uh, it's been known for a while now that a growing abundance of plastic that's hanging around in the marine environment comes in the form of tiny particles or microplastics that are less than a millimetre in size. And that's obviously stuff that we won't see with the naked eye. But the question is, where's it all coming from? That's the big question tackled by a team of researchers led by Mark Brown from the University of California, Santa Barbara, and Richard Thompson from Plymouth University here in the UK. Their paper came out late last year, and I had a chance to catch up with Richard and find out more about their forensic approach to identifying the source of polluting plastic.
5: In 2004, we published a paper showing that small fragments of plastic, microscopic pieces, some less than the diameter of a human hair, were accumulating in the oceans, and that they'd increased over time. So the key question was, where was that material coming from, and and to what extent was it causing harm? And and over the last ten years... We've examined a number of different routes at the University of Plymouth. We've looked at rates of fragmentation of larger items of debris, and we know they contribute to the picture. We've looked at direct releases of small pieces of plastic into the environment. Pieces of plastic, for example, that are used as abrasive scrubbers in in cleaning products, um, pieces less than a millimetre or so in size, and yet many tonnes released to the oceans through sewage and wastewater. But another line of inquiry that we wanted to pursue was that some of the material, the microscopic material we were finding, was was fibrous in shape. And it occurred to us that some of this could be resulting from um, the cleaning both at home and in industrial settings of of fabrics and and, and textiles resulting in accumulation of of small fibers that wouldn't necessarily be removed by, by any form of sewage treatment.
2: Richard, Mark and the team set out and took samples of sediments from shorelines in 18 sites spanning the globe on six continents. And they found microplastic everywhere. The team then zeroed in on the possible source of these fibres.
5: We found quite substantial quantities of fibres being released at the ends of a washing machine pipe. We found similar fibres being released from sewage treatment plants. And we found in the UK that... Despite the fact that dumping of sewage sludge stopped over ten years ago, there was a greater abundance of this kind of synthetic fibre at sites that were formerly used as dumping grounds than in nearby reference sites.
2: So what is the likely impact of all this plastic on marine life?
5: We know from laboratory studies that creatures with a range of different feeding mechanisms, uh, barnacles and mussels that filter their food from the water column, Marine worms that live in sediments and and effectively strip their organic matter from from those sediments. And detritivores, things like sandhoppers that live at the top of the shore. All of those creatures will ingest material of this size in laboratory exposures. And indeed with the work with the mussels that we did here at Plymouth showed that after a single exposure and then moving the muscles to clean conditions, even after more than forty days, those muscles have still got plastic in their system. And so there's some suggestion that, you know, these small fragments of plastic can accumulate in the tissues of organisms in a way that we wouldn't expect from the natural food source. That still doesn't prove that it's doing those creatures any harm, but I think it's an important step on the way to establishing what harm it might cause.
2: A further concern surrounds the possibility that very small pieces of plastic could transport and release chemicals found in the environment from other sources.
5: A lot of the chemicals of concern here are hydrophobic in nature, and so they'll latch onto plastics in preference to water And so a small piece of plastic exposed in the sea within a space of uh, a week or so will will absorb and concentrate on its surface concentrations of some of those chemicals that can be many, many fold the concentrations in the surrounding seawater. So that's a potential if those plastics are then eaten, could those chemicals then be released? And that's in addition to existing concerns about some of the chemicals that are used in the production of a variety of plastics.
2: A team in Japan are running a project called International Pellet Watch, and they're asking members of the public to send in tiny particles of plastic so they can analyse and map out the global distribution of these hydrophobic organic pollutants that stick to plastic in the ocean. So if you want to find out what chemicals are found on your local beach, then check out pelletwatch.org. Well, plastic debris in the oceans is obviously a huge topic, and you can find out more about that from a recent report that Richard co-wrote for the Global Environmental Facility, and you can download that from our website. But as his studies showed, if all these plastic fibres are washing out of our clothes, up to 19,000 of them for each time a single fleece is washed, which is what the team found, then is the solution simply to get the washing machine engineers to come up with better filters so these fibres don't end up in sewage water in the first place?
5: It's part of the picture, Um, you know, fixing the the quantities of small synthetic fibers passing from wastewater pipes is not going to solve the problems of pollution of the oceans by solid marine debris. Uh, You know, a large proportion of which is is plastic items, rope, netting, packaging, and what we're discussing here with respect to fibers in washing machines is, is part of that story, but it's not going to solve it on its own.
2: Richard Thompson there from Plymouth University talking about his study looking into the sources of microplastics that are getting everywhere in the oceans. Well I've got a story now
0: about corals and uh, we all know that increased temperatures can stress corals out and cause bleaching which which is when the symbiotic algae that produce energy for the corals are lost causing the coral to turn all white and it stops growing and they often die. But with climate change, corals are often subjected to extremes of both heat and cold. And now a study published in Scientific Reports has shown that both heat and cold can stress corals out, but they do so in different ways. Melissa Roth, Ralph Goericher and Dimitri Deheim from the Scripps Institution of Oceanography studied an important species of reef-building coral called Acropora by growing fragments in individual tanks and then subjecting them to a change in temperature either plus or minus 5 degrees C from an original temperature of 26 degrees C. The team found that Acropora subjected to a decrease in temperature showed a greater decline in growth and the amount of photosynthetic symbionts in their cells in the first five days of the experiment compared to those that were heat treated. Now, this could be because the enzymes required for photosynthesis work more slowly at lower temperatures, so obviously they won't be producing as much energy, so they can't grow as quickly, and also because uh, previous experiments have shown that cold shock So a shock of cold temperature can cause the coral cells containing these little photosynthetic algae to be jettisoned off into the water. However, over the final 15 days of the 20-day experiment, the cold-treated corals seemed to fare a lot better. They acclimated and began to recover their growth rate and stabilise their symbiont numbers. In contrast, heat-treated corals did progressively worse with prolonged exposure to increased temperature, Photosynthesis decreased and eventually the corals bleached and stopped growing. The authors suggests that although temporary extremes of cold could threaten corals, it's still a prolonged increase in temperature that is more damaging, which is really worrying given the increases
2: in temperature that we're already seeing in many areas of the oceans. Yep, it seems like every day we just come up with more reasons why corals are going to find it hard to survive in the future with all us people on the planet as well. Well, we are talking seagrasses this month on Naked Oceans, and it just so happens that a rather awesome seagrass story has just hit the news headlines, and that is that seagrasses, wait for it, could be the oldest living things on the planet. Yes, I know, Sarah's looking weirdly at me, but this is, it it really is extraordinary. Um, Basically, this is a study on Mediterranean seagrass meadows, and um, it looks like they could date back hundreds of thousands of years. And I'm not just talking about there were seagrasses that looked like the ones that there are now actually the same genetic strains could still have been around because as well as reproducing sexually like flowering plants seagrasses have the habit of spreading by dividing and cloning themselves and the mediterranean species posidonia oceanica is no exception dna analysis of genetically identical swathes of seagrass in areas between spain and cyprus has revealed their great age And the oldest patch they found off a Spanish island is estimated to be 200,000 years old. It's been sitting around on the seabed, quietly, slowly dividing away for longer than modern human beings have walked the earth. This is absolutely, it just makes your brain hurt a bit, really. But what it shows is that seagrasses are able to adapt to changing conditions, because obviously the earth has gone through many different cycles of hot and cold and so on, since, though, this particular strain of seagrass began growing, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they'll be able to cope with the changes human activities are throwing at them, because the rates of change today um, of things like water temperature and pH are so much faster than they were in the past. But just bear that in mind today, if you remember one thing from this podcast is that seagrasses can be very, very old.
6: Well,
0: I've got a final little mini sort of story of extremes. So from extreme age to extreme size, uh, researchers have been exploring 7,000 metres down in the ocean, down in the Kermadec trend, which is just north of New Zealand, and they found a new supergiant species of amphipod, which is a type of crustacean uh, that looks a bit like a sort of heavily armoured prawn, like a prawn ready to go to war. Uh, the interesting thing about the specimens, uh, which were around 30 centimetres, which was about a foot long, compared to most amphipods, that are only a few centimetres or inches long, uh, was that when the researchers then took their camera and trap system back to the same trench a few days later the amphipods were nowhere to be seen. So it's just an intriguing little glimpse into the mysterious world of the deep sea that these huge animals that we've never seen before and, and they've never seen again. So it's, it's all quite mysterious and exciting. Well, don't forget you can find out more about all our news stories from this month at our website. That's thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans.
1: Are there really plenty more fish in the sea? Find out with Naked Oceans.
2: So we've had an introduction to seagrasses and all the important things that they do. But let's move on to some of the more iconic inhabitants of seagrass meadows, the sirenia or sea cows. And that includes three species of manatees and the dugong. So, Sarah, do you know the easiest way to tell a manatee from a dugong? I know this isn't some kind of joke. (laughs) Uh, no, I wouldn't have the first idea actually because from the front end they do look quite similar but if you get to their tail, um, manatees have spoon shaped tails and dugongs have a fluked tail like a dolphin or a whale, so that makes them quite easy to tell apart Well, the least known of all the sirenia is the West African manatee As the name suggests, they live along the west coast of Africa and they have a huge range between Senegal all the way down to Angola and they can also move hundreds of miles inland along rivers as well and someone who knows more than anyone else about these Mysterious marine mammals is researcher and conservationist Lucy Keith Gian. She told me how she first got tempted to visit West Africa in search of manatees.
6: I had actually been working with manatees in Florida and the Caribbean for six years when I went to a um, scientific meeting, a um, marine mammalogy conference, and just by pure coincidence, I met there a humpback whale researcher who was working in Gabon, West Africa. And he mentioned to me that uh, each day as he traveled to his study site out in the Atlantic Ocean in, in Gabon, he was actually passing a lot of West African manatees. And from everything he'd heard, they were quite rare. But here he was seeing them daily. He thought that was pretty interesting.
2: Lucy ended up spending the next six years working with manatees in Gabon. And she began visiting other parts of the manatees range across West Africa. And as she travelled around, saw more manatees, and spoke to people in different countries, it became obvious just how mysterious these animals are.
6: There's so little known about the species. We don't even know how long the species lives, the age of sexual maturity... We don't know anything about mother-calf behaviour. For example, in Florida, when a mother managed to give birth, the calf stays with it for two years. And in Africa, we have no idea if that's the case. That's an important time because the mother actually teaches her calf everything it needs to know to survive, where to go to get food, where to go to get fresh water.
2: So to answer some of those big questions surrounding West African manatees, Lucy is conducting a range of studies, including working out how long they live.
6: Mantees, we age them through their ear bones because they have um, what's known as marching molars. Their teeth in their jar, basically on a conveyor belt, and they use their teeth, obviously, to crush plants, and as they wear them out, they lose their teeth and the back teeth move forward throughout their life, and therefore we can't really use those to age them. But their ear bone is very similar to, say, the otolith of a fish or also the rings of a tree where it can be sliced, and we can actually count the rings to determine their age.
2: Lucy and her colleague Katie Brill from the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, D.C., have recently, for the first time, worked out the age of West African manatees using ear bones collected from dead animals. The oldest they found was 39 years old, which is surprisingly old for a manatee. For other species of Cyrenia in the wild, anything over about 20 years is considered pretty old. But they also found some younger manatees, too
6: particularly in Ghana, where they're heavily hunted in Lake Volta, uh, the ages were a lot younger. You know, they were, they were the only manatees that were in the single digits, like 3, 4, and 5 years old, which starts to make you concerned that perhaps they're hunting these animals so young that they might not even be able to reproduce, because we don't know the age of first reproduction in the species. But in Florida, it's five years old. So um, if they're not even making it to five, then they're they're going to hunt them all out before they can even reproduce.
2: Another part of the manatee puzzle that Lucy has set out to solve is how their populations are subdivided across their enormous range. It's known that individual manatees don't tend to swim very far; their home ranges are less than a hundred miles, and this raises important questions for conservation.
1: Where
6: are the population boundaries? You know, where are Areas where genetically these manatees might be very different from other populations and therefore more important to protect if you want to protect biodiversity um, of the species. And add to that that you also now have many man-made dams throughout all major rivers in Africa that are now separating some of these Populations permanently in Mali alone, um, in the Niger River, you have at least four or five major dams, and I just heard about a new one that's going in. So you actually chopped up the population there into these four or five different groups that can never mix again and interbreed. And going forward in the future, if we hope to conserve these animals, it's it's really important to know uh, how different they are from each other or how similar.
2: To work out where those natural and man-made boundaries lie, a genetic study is underway, using tissue samples from wherever Lucy can get them.
6: It's very difficult to get the samples. The manatee either has to be dead, unfortunately, or else, um, you know, captured alive and sampled. And there really aren't many people um, able to capture safely a live manatee. And there are a few cases where the animals are rescued and released, but unfortunately most of the samples do come from manatees that are dead, either from natural causes or through hunting.
2: Another aspect of manatee ecology that Lucy and her team are investigating is what they eat. In parts of their range where there is seagrass then that does tend to form an important part of their diet. They also eat various other types of aquatic vegetation including floating plants like water lilies or when rivers flood manatees swim out across the dry land and graze on grasses and shrubs. But this can be highly seasonal and rather than having to cope with cold winters like manatees in Florida, the West African manatees have to deal with with long dry seasons when there's not much around to eat. And that could be why, despite being famous vegetarians, Lucy is finding out that this isn't always the case. West African manatees, it seems, will also eat shellfish.
6: I have seen manatees eating clams in Angola, in a freshwater river system. And, um, you know, some of these clamshells are quite hard to crush, so... It's amazing that they can do it. Um I'm told by the local people in Angola that they believe that the mantis are eating only the small ones or uh the dead clams that pop open and so the clam meat would be would be
2: exposed. To get more information about manatee diets, Lucy is carrying out a stable isotope analysis. This involves taking samples of body tissue like hair and bone and examining the chemical fingerprint that's left behind when manatees eat particular types of food. That way she's building a picture of what they eat across their range. Another thing that she's discovering is that in some places, manatees and people are sometimes chasing after the same food.
6: Another thing that we we got a lot of reports of and in one place, I've verified it to be true is that the mantis take fish from nets. And again, I think this partially goes back to this dry season uh, fasting or you know very little food resources available for them in the dry season. Um, that they they do take fish out of fishermen's nets. They actually suck the fish meat off the fish and leave the head in the net, um, which of course doesn't make the fishermen very happy. But in a way, I think it's, it's kind of ingenious. You know, they need food, they need protein, and, and when they don't have many other choices, um, for example, up in Senegal and eastern Senegal in the river during the dry season, they're clearly taking fish from that. So there's no other large animal in the system that would be able to do that.
2: An important part of Lucy's work involves collaborating with local people. In the case of fishermen who were having their catches eaten by manatees, helping them to avoid competing for the same food. She's also tapping into local knowledge of these elusive animals and nurturing a network of researchers to help with her work in many of the West African countries that manatees live in.
6: They figure prominently in the cultures where people have hunted them for generations. They're often tied to legends and myths of a spirit called Mami Wata. But, you know, those places are often very remote and there isn't a lot of contact with the outside world And so they may know they live there, but those of us who try to do conservation work, you know, you you literally have to go to places and ask people. They're just not well-known where they exist. And I think that is a problem for conservation because, as I say, they are heavily hunted throughout most of their range. And so one of the things that I've been trying to do is build a network of African scientists in their own countries. Um, There is a lot of interest to protect manatees, but... They don't have a lot of resources to do that. And so the people that I've been working with and training over the last three years are um, usually affiliated with a university or a nonprofit organization or government. And they um, want to start doing manatee work but don't know where to begin. And so we bring these people for one to two weeks of training where... We tell them about manatees, but we also take them in the field and teach them how to use sampling equipment and how to search for manatees and how to conduct a village interview in a way that doesn't give the the people leading questions. So I'm trying to build this network uh, not only to get information about the manatee, but to collect the samples so that we can start to analyze things like population size and what they're eating and what they need to be protected.
2: That was Lucy Keith-Jean from Sea to Shore and also the University of Florida, where she's doing her PhD on the ecology of West African manatees. You can find out more about Lucy's work and those elusive West African manatees by following links from our website. That's thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans.
1: From seagrass to sunfish, dugongs to diatoms, this is Naked Oceans.
0: Right, well, it's time for another Critter of the Month on Naked Oceans. Here's Edie Widder from the Ocean Research and Conservation Association telling us if she was a marine critter, which one she'd be and why.
3: There is this wonderful deep-sea fish. It's not very common, so it doesn't really have a common name, but sometimes it's referred to as the stoplight fish. And it has light organs under its eye, like a lot of deep-sea fish, to help it see in the dark. But in most deep-sea fish that have these headlights, they're blue because if you ever open your eyes underwater, you know everything looks blue, because blue is the color that travels furthest through seawater. Other colors are absorbed. So this fish has a blue light organ, and like most fish, it can see blue light. But it also has a red light organ, and most fish can't see red light, but this fish can. So it uses its bioluminescence like a sniper scope. This fish was actually the inspiration for the camera system called the eye in the sea that I developed to be able to observe unobtrusively in the deep ocean. So if I were going to come back as a deep sea animal, I want to come back as this fish. You could swim around in the ocean and observe life in the ocean, but be unseen, be unobtrusive. And I just think that that's the most amazing adaptation to be able to sneak up on other animals. Of course, it has to get pretty close because the red light doesn't travel very far. But still, it can sneak up very close to other animals, see them, and not be seen.
0: So the stoplight fish, certainly a cunning creature with its red sniper scope that most fish can't see. And you may remember that we actually included the stoplight in our 12 critters of Christmas back in 2010. So go and have a listen to that if you want to hear more about them. That
2: was Edie Witter from the Ocean Research and Conservation Association in Florida choosing our critter of the month. Well, that's all we've got time for on Naked Oceans this month. It just remains for me to say a big thank you to Emmett Duffy, Lucy keith Gian, Richard Thompson and Edie Widder. Until next time, you can catch us on Twitter at Naked Oceans or email us. The address is nakedoceans at thenakedscientist.com. And as always, you'll find more info on this month's show and all the others at thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans. Thanks for listening and catch you next time.
1: Naked Oceans is produced by the Naked Scientists and supported by the Save Our Seas Foundation. For more information, look them up online at savercs.com.